You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. This poem is number 10. If it does not feed the fire of your creativity, then leave it. If people and things do not inspire your heart to dream, then leave them. If you are not crazily in love and making a stupid fool of yourself, then step closer to the edge of your heart and climb where you've been forbidden to go. Debts, accusations, assaults by enemies mean nothing. You must go where the fire feeds you. Turn your attention to the magic of horrors, grief, addicts, and drunks until you stumble upon that shining halo surrounding your heart that will allow you to violate every fear happily. Be where you're not supposed to be. The love of an angel who's caught your blood on fire again who's gulped all of you in one breath to mix in her soul to explode your brooding and again your words rush from the stones like a river coursing down from some motherly mountain source and if your life doesn't spill forth unabashedly recklessly randomly pushing in wonder at life then change, leave, quit, silence the idle chatter, and do away with useless acquaintances who have forgotten how to dream. Bit rudely in your dark mood at the mediocrity of scholars who meddle in whimsy for academic trifles. Let you be their object of scorn, let you be their object of mockery, let you be their chilling symbol of what they never had the courage to do, to complete, to follow. Let you be the flaming faith that makes them shield their eyes as you burn from all sides, taking a harmless topic and making of it a burning galaxy or shooting star in the dark of their souls illuminating your sadness, your aching joy for life, your famished insistence for God, and all that is creative to attend you as a witness to your struggle. Let the useless banter and the quick pleasures belong to others, the merchants, computer analysis, and government workers. You haven't been afraid of rapture among thieves, bloody duels, and drunken brawls, denying yourself the essence of your soul work, as poems rusted while you scratched at your heart to see if it was a diamond and not cheap pain glass. Now then, after returning from one more poet's journey, in the heart of the bear, the teeth of the wolf, the legs of the wild horse, sense what your experience tells you, your ears ringing with deception and lies and foul tastes. Now that your memory is riddled with blank loss, Tyrants who wielded their boastful threats to the sleeping dogs and old trees in the yard. Now that you've been returned from men and women who abandoned their dreams and sit around like corpses in the grave, mouldering with regret. Now, 
steady your heart, my friend. With fortitude, long-lasting, enduring hope, inhale the early dawn like a ship off coast that comes for you. Spent and ragged and beggared, if what you do and how you live does not feed the fire in your heart and blossom into poems, then leave, quit, do not turn back. Move fast away from that which would mold your gift. Break it, disrespect it, kill it. Guard it, nurture it. Take your full-flung honorable heart and plunge it into the fire, into the stars, into the trees, into the hearts of others. Sorrow and love and restore the dream by writing of it again, writing of it again, discovering its wild beauty. Jimmy Santiago Baca, reading from his collection, Healing Earthquakes. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I was interested in a phrase in one of your biographies about translating rage and dispossession, and I just loved what that what that was, what that what that sounded like. And I'm wondering, when you speak now to kids, when you speak in prisons, and you see that you see that same rage and that dispossession, what do you tell them, or do you just move right into the poetry? Is that does that say what you want it to say? I I don't really know what I'm going to tell anybody when I go see them. Uh, I get a real sense of uh, I get a sense from them. So almost everything that I do when I meet whoever I meet in whatever institution or otherwise, it's always different. But um, uh, everybody suffers from dispossession. Everybody suffers from loss or whatever. It's just all different. Everyone, basically, basically, you know, we're all given sort of like, we're given Lincoln logs, but a lot of the logs are missing. And so no one really has a home, convict or priest, bishop or whore. And what we all learn eventually is that we all have to play together with our Lincoln logs, and that way we can create one big home. And we're learning that, you know, so... Some people get mad and walk off. Other people want to own all the logs. Nobody wants to share. But everybody learns. There's only one way of doing this, and that's to share. The dispossessed now possess, and the lonely now feel crowded in by so much stimulation, and the poor feel rich. A lot of things can happen once you break down the barriers that separate people. Poetry's good at that. Well, um, this is a related question, I guess. I'm wondering about the evolutionary arc of your work, how you see your early stuff versus what you're writing now. And, and I'm wondering if, if you dip back a lot when you're talking to people and, or if it's, if it's just all there all the time. I'm, I'm thinking as an artist, you know, artists move forward, right? That arc keeps going. But do you ever dip back into, okay, you know, yeah, I know where you are, and here's what I said about it? Mm, no. Never, never dip back. I'm not a dipper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't dip. I, I, uh, everything I do, I try to take on as a... I like, I like, to, I like to do things. Um, I just finished this big... I just finished a novel, and... It'll be made into a movie, and it's coming out late spring, called Nopal. And uh, 
My next project is a musical. I want to do a musical, and it's going to be a great story. I got the story, and I'm writing the lyrics now. And um, I've never done a musical. I've done movies. I've done all sorts of other things. But uh, so it's going to be cool. So I don't ever look back. I just keep going forward. I like to try things I haven't done. So the musical will be really cool. Well, yeah, you, you screenwriter, right? You've got um, Bound for Honor, produced in 1993, poet, novelist, memoirist. Do you have a, I mean, is, is the musical your focus now? Do you, do you keep doing everything at one time? Do you, are your creative juices kind of concentrated somewhere? Well, they were for the last five years. I mean, I'm really, really glad I did it. I can't, I can't be thankful enough to the deities that control the muse, but... This is for Nepal. Yeah. She was, uh, it, she was amazing. God, what an incredible woman. She took me to the border, and I, and, I, and I went into this crazy, incredible world of the farm worker. And uh, I must have, uh, you know, I went over it a few times. But, yeah, it's, uh, it was a good, it was a really good, it was probably the most miserable five years of my life. But they were also probably the best. What made it so miserable? Um, the war in Iraq and the Bush administration. So not speaking of your creative process, but speaking of the larger scene. Yeah, but it's odd, it's odd because uh, the people in London at the Bloomsbury and the people in New York at the New York Times and everywhere, everyone's calling it a masterpiece. Uh, and it's still not even published yet, but it's odd that that uh, that some writers in the worst of times write total mediocrity crap, and other writers write their best work. And in the best of times, some writers write their best work, and others write the most mediocre work. Mm -hmm. I just happen to be one of those writers, I think, that under the worst of times, I write my best work. Mm -hmm. It makes it kind of miserable, but it's, it's good. It's what it keeps me alive. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of Nepal? This is it's the same old story of why, I mean, for everybody, just uh, the American dream and a, a couple coming here. A woman and a man, and they come, and they, they, don't, they don't come together. They meet each other here, and they're field workers, and they start a family. And I wanted to track what it was like to have that family and to have that dream and to be Mexicans and all that, and to have Chicano kids, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Kind of explore it. Yeah. You're going to get to see uh, Luis Valdez while you're in town? I, I see him. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to see him, but I have the greatest, fondest memories of meeting him last time I was passing through you know, so I saw him. He was enjoying a nice Cuban cigar, writing a play, I think, or something. Was, All that, that stuff he does, yeah, plays. I was, <laughs> I, I was sitting there just kind of talking to him. It was, it was late at night. So I don't know if I'll see him this time, but it'd be nice. Can you talk about, and I guess first you have to uh, agree with the assumption of the question, but uh, again, it kind of kind of draws on uh, some of the biographical information that I've been reading about you. Talk about myth in in poetry and myth in um, maybe transcending circumstances and and using it in writing. I mean, because certainly you know what you write is very autobiographical, 
but um, you know, there's other levels there, of course. Well, everybody's life is a myth. Um, everybody's life is a myth emotionally, and everybody's life is nothing mentally. I mean, your brain doesn't really, your brain kind of walks you through the day, and there's no mythic events that take place or mythic encounters. But the heart, I think, recognizes in its instinct the mythic encounter of just the sun rising. So we're everybody, everybody's sort of in that mythical landscape. It's just how you recognize it and stuff. And, um, it, it, you know, people have a tendency to think, you know, that uh, great suffering equals great experience equals great heroic survival, and it's just not true. Myth, at its best, uh, takes place with the common people, the woman at the stove cooking, the guy who's outside working in the garden, the child who's trying to go to school and fit in. Those are all mythic uh, journeys, you know? It's very simple, I mean, I, you know, uh, the arc of my career as such, you know, I've won probably, uh, I've probably won a lot of awards and stuff, but they really don't mean that much, really. Just the process means a lot. I think the process is mythic. Somebody, somebody focusing on, on capturing an emotional clip that uh, can be reproduced in a million hearts is mythic. Stuff like that. Well, I wonder if you would read for me. Short enough? I hear you're a poet. Are you a poet? Indeed. Would you like to read? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could do it justice. Of course you can. You read it. Let me hold the mic. Okay, but you got to tell me a story of this poem when I'm done. It's a central poem. Grandma had her first affair after that meal. Not with me, but, you know, with this old guy. That chili <laughs> got her really rocking that day, I guess. I'm not really sure why. Okay. <clears throat> okay, this is from Black Mesa Poems by Jimmy Santiago Baca, and this poem is called Green Chili. You crack me up. Why am I doing this? I prefer red chili over my eggs and potatoes for breakfast. Red chili ristras decorate my door, dry on my roof, and hang from eaves. They lend open-air vegetable stands historical grandeur and gently swing with an air of festive welcome. I can hear them talking in the wind, haggard, yellowing, crisp, rasping tongues of old men licking the breeze. But grandmother loves green chili. When I visit her, she holds the green chili pepper in her wrinkled hands. Ah voluptuous, masculine, an air of authority, and youth simmers from its swan-neck stem, tapering to a flowery collar, fermenty, resinous spice. A well-dressed gentleman at the door, my grandmother takes sensually in her hand, rubbing its firm, glossed sides, caressing the oily, rubbery serpent with mouth watering from fulfillment, fondling its curves with gentle fingers, its bearing magnificent and taut as flanks of a tiger in mid-leap. She thrusts her blade into it and cuts it open with lust on her hot mouth, sweating over the stove, bandana round her forehead, mysterious passion on her face as she serves me green chili con carne, 
between soft warm leaves of corn tortillas with beans and rice, her sacrifice to her little prince. I slurp from my plate with last bit of tortilla, my mouth burns and I hiss and drink a tall glass of cold water. All over New Mexico, sunburned men and women drive rickety trucks stuffed with gunny sacks of green chili from Belén, Beguita, Willard, Estancia, San Antonio, Socorro, from fields to roadside stands, you see them roasting green chili in screen-sided homemade barrels. And for a dollar a bag, we relive this old, beautiful ritual again and again. Ladies and gentlemen, that was one of the best readings I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> that was really good. I can't believe how good that was. <laughs> how did you do that so well? Uh, did, you, uh, did you study my cadence or something? Mm, no, sir. Although I was listening to um, to uh, to you online, they they did some recordings of you uh, a few years back at the Chicago Field Museum, and that was really nice. Go to Cedar Tree Inc. and see what we've done there with one of our nonprofits. Mm. A lot of really good stuff. Cool. Audio audio on there. There's audio, but it's mostly documentaries. We're doing. A, I have a little film company. We do a lot of work, and we have some clips there, and uh, they're pretty cool. Well, um, I want to take you, if you remember the story, which I'm sure you will, um, to something from that, that same reading that I was listening to online. Um, you talked about a poem you have, Set This Book on Fire, which is a great poem, and I don't have a copy of it. <laughs> um, have you read it? I've heard you read it oh. on, that, on, that re on that site. But... Um, you were kind of talking about, you know, kind of, you know, no matter how, what your story is or, you know, you, you know, however hard the background, it's not everybody's story. Everybody's got their own story. They've got their own hard times. They've got their own stuff that, you know, as a writer, we, as writers, we sometimes uh, assume and put on the page. Um, can you talk a little bit about that story and that poem? About everybody having their own story? Yeah, and uh, you know, I know you're you were uh, in um, set this book on fire. You were talking about how uh, you know you kind of got challenged one time by a guy who said, you know, you're telling lies. You're still oh my, yeah, you're oh yeah. My, uh, That's good. My life. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, there's two sides to that. There's two sides to that. There's the people that write about things they've never experienced. And then there's the people, yeah, the things that they've never experienced, they write about. And I used to think that um, that was really hypocritical to talk about a young African-American being killed in a drive-by or a Mexican kid shooting someone. And then you have this person who's never even experienced that write about it. And... Uh, I think I've come to the conclusion that it's still probably not right to to pretend you had an experience. I mean, the imagination can work in a poem in a different way than pretending an experience. That's not imagination. Imagination has a sort of a sublime disguise and when it enters your work, it enters it in such a way like a wind does across the f 
the wheat field or something. It doesn't pretend to be the wheat. It becomes part of it in some way. And um, and there's an awful lot of people in order for them to be vogue with pop culture have to pretend a lot of experiences, you know, rather than deal with their own. So I think that kind of hurts a little bit because um, in prose you can pretend all you want. But I don't think you can do that in poetry. So um, that cuts out half of all poets right away. I'm sure they'll be happy with that, right? And then it uh, it challenges the other half to be as honest as they can be in their work. So I mean, even if I didn't have anything that I experienced, I would write about nothing that I'm experiencing. I would write about nothing. I would say, hey, you know, I've never experienced anything. So this entire book is about nothing. And I bet you it'd be a bestseller. Seinfeld was about nothing. He didn't pretend to be a crack dealer or anything. He, he lived all around him. He was just this Jewish kid that came out and had a nothing life. He was about nothing. He was for nothing. He represented nothing. He did nothing. He aspired to nothing. He just wanted to get a little series on NBC. He had a couple of short midget friends that were Jews, and one of them worked as an editor, and the other one, I'm not sure what the other guy did. The ball-headed guy, he was always jumping around. Oh, yeah, he worked with the Yankees organization. But uh, it was so popular because there's so many of us caught up in nothing. And the people who do have something to say, they can say it, but the, most of the time they say it with uh, defensives, which make it worse than it could have been. Like, uh, like, like if I'm Chicano, if I'm going to talk about how bad drugs are in my neighborhood, I'm not going to blame white people for it because that deteriorates my experience. My experience has nothing to do with them. It doesn't depend on it, doesn't compare itself to it, doesn't relate to it. It's just me seeing the damage that drugs do. And if I write about that, that's cool. But if I bring all these other, like, it's his fault, her fault, that's, you know what I'm saying? So, so it also obligates you to be as honest craft-wise as you can. Do you ever have, I mean, you know, you were, you were, t- actually, tell me first, you were in prison for how long? At what age? Uh, 21 years. That's how old you were, right? And you were... I started, I started when I was five, and I ended my, my internment when I was 28. So how many, how many years is that? About 21 years. Five. Yeah. They have prisons for little people. Help me. They have, they have, they have prisons for little people. What, what, what was that? Oh, I know what that prison was. Centers, they have orphanages. Uh, they have jails. They have reformatories. They have all kinds of jails for little people. Yeah. They just take a little person when he grows up and puts them into a big person prison. Five to 13 was the orphanage, huh? Something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure when, but yeah. So um, the question. <laughs> First time I ever made love to a nun. I love nuns. <laughs> Do you ever have survivor's guilt? What? Do you ever have uh, survivor's guilt? You know, you made a decision. You know, you, you, you came out of prison and became a writer and became 
crazy successful and you know you made that you made that choice and you took you took that road but there's all those people that something. took a darker road let me tell you something what few people know is that i turned oprah down to go on her show because she wouldn't bring on the kids i was teaching to learn how to read and write what few people understand is that i refused to be packaged in new york so they could make me into this great Chicano writer. I refused to have publicists and agents wrap me up and sell me. I refused to be part of that whole Hollywood thing after I did the, the movie. I left it. And I went on to become really successful and full in life and wholesome and soul and pleased emotionally and stimulated mentally and imbued culturally with all over, people from all over the world. It's such a gorgeous, wonderful, incredible journey. I just fucking, oh, I'm sorry. I just refused. You're not going to, I'm not going to play your game in society. I'm not going to do it. So you can call me and say what a total asshole I am for not taking advantage of Oprah because you could have sold 20 minutes. I don't want to sell 20 minutes. I just want to live my life the way I want it. And I can't go fishing. I can't go hunting. I can't be with my kids. I can't do shit if I'm on the Oprah show because everyone and their mother is going to be thinking I'm sort of a heroic journey, mythic, Joseph Campbell character that they want to give talks to, and I don't want that. It's, you know, I just want my appeal and my popularity to be spread by word of mouth. And so be it, so it is. It, it is. It's like unbelievable. I mean, it's, I'm charging 15000 a reading, and I'm booked two and a half years, three years in advance, and it's by people who heard it. They're like... Oh, yeah, I heard from my friend Susan. Susan told Phyllis. Phyllis, and I was like, whoa. Just unbelievable how this word spreads. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. But it's lovely because you get to go there, and it's like people, you just really get to be around people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I probably met two or three million people, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, my books are on their 16th printings, 16 books in 31 languages, and they just keep on printing them. And I keep paying my mortgage. You know, I keep, I haven't held a job in 32 years. I make quite a bit of money and I take care of a lot of people. I do what I want. I wake up when I want, I go sleep when I want, I date who I want, I cook what I want. I'm not sure what else I could want. I think God's given me everything I could possibly want. I mean, I hope I don't get sick and I hope the people I love don't get sick. I just spent 50000 two weeks ago to save a woman's house. I was free to do that. They, they were taking her home away and I, and I gave her 50 grand. And I guess I could have used it to buy a new Mercedes, but I gave it to her. And, and there wasn't even a word shared between us. I just gave it to her and looked in her eyes and said, this is for you. And she looked at me and I could tell, I just won a whole lot of brownie points in heaven. I could tell that she was, I could tell it was this thing that transcends language, she just said, thank you. And I said, don't even mention it, you know, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. So, it, you know, it's funny, because I don't even think about the value of money. All I think about is that she can sleep in her bedroom, you know, cook at her stove again. They were going to come take it from her, and I was like, what? It's the mother, it's the house her mother gave her, you know, you can't do this. This is like... This is one of those inviolable things you can't cross, you know? You can't come and take this woman's house. So on my own, I just woke up in the morning and said, the hell with it, you know? I said, okay, I've got to do 
three readings really quick, fast. Then I was on us, hurry it up, get the money and bring it back to her, you know? That's what I did. So any thoughts on those folks that make a different choice? Some of those folks that you know, early early on in our conversation, you said you know some people you know, walk away angry. You know if you show up with words. Or you know they have this thing. I think Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know. I don't really like a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous because they seem to become drunkenly mean. They seem to take meanness as a way they as their new liquor. They become real. They become irritable and annoying as hell. Not all of them, but the ones I've met recently. And uh, and so the and then there's the other people who drink a lot, keep making all the same mistakes, and do whatever they do. And then uh, and then there's some, those magic people that um, I don't know where they get it from, but I I have some friends and I meet these men and women that um, they're just amazing. Uh, I don't know how they do it. They kind of go they 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 plant corn. And then they'll go out and look at the, and this is an example to illustrate my point. They'll, they'll look at the corn and see how the tassels come up this way and the green leaves. And, and, and the, men, the things that they can do with that corn, they boil it and invite everybody over to eat and stuff. And somehow they use that as a template to live by. It's just, it, it just boggles my imagination. They open the door and, and you see a corn stock welcoming you in. She's like, Come on in. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it's like every single kernel of thought that she has is imbued with sunlight. You know, you're like, and you sit down and, and you feel that the woman is ancient that you're talking to, and and you and 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 you and you touch her hand and you feel like, this is a leaf that's been in the wind and been out all night for all summer. You know, it's it's this. And then when you leave them, they don't give you any baggage. They don't give you anything. They just give you love. They just say bye. I love you. And you're just like, damn, if I only I could live like that. If only I could, if I, there's no way I can write that down. There's no way I can have it in a book. There's no way I can follow it. I just have to, the only thing that I can, I can say is that they're connected to God. So how do I get connected to God? And then I say, okay, I'll do yoga and meditate. And then when I do, I get close to that feeling that I feel about them, you know? So those are the people that keep showing us new ways of living. And the other ones are kind of cool because they keep bouncing, banging heads in the walls. And it's kind of cool to have those kind of reminders around you. Oh, that doesn't work. By the way, the door's over here. And it's kind of cool to find a door. But when you're banging your head against the wall, you don't have time to look for a door. And it's kind of cool to meet people that are banging their heads and other ones that are corn stalks. And then, you know, and poets seem to be corn stalks. I meet a lot of poets that are cornstalks. They're like, unless they're aspiring to be the greatest, whatever. But the ones that are caught up in the loveliness of language and the delight of metaphor and stuff, mm -hmm. they're so cool to be around, you know? I mean, their breath gets you all hot and bothered. Just when they exhale, you're like, oh my God, what can I do? <laughs> what do I do? Where do I go? You know? Cold water. <laughs> so it's the it's the Lincoln Logs, huh? It's, it's the Lincoln Logs. We need we need we need those ones that are taking uh, the dark road too, huh? And, and we keep the putting them all together. The, they're the ones that have the heroic journeys. I'll never forget, and I think Salinas Valley people can can understand this. I was doing a documentary on on the most famous feminist women in America, 
And I used this woman's house. It was a big, huge, gorgeous old adobe. And the whole time I was in this other room with the lights and the director and everybody, and we're interviewing them, I kept looking into the kitchen. And this woman was at the kitchen stove the whole time, and I kept seeing these kids walk in, because I didn't want them to make noise because we were recording, and I kept like just looking over there. And they would come in, and they would sit down, and she would feed them. And the kid would go, and they wouldn't make any noise with the plates in the sink or the kitchen stove. Nothing. And then I'd see another kid come in. I'd see a couple of girls come in. Then I'd see another kid come in. I'm like, God, what the hell is she doing? I thought. So I said, uh, let's take a pause here. And uh, these other women from the feminist movement were talking about big, big ideas, really big. And I went into the room, and I said, hey, uh, uh, can I have a bowl of that red chili and a tortilla? And she said, feminist, my ass. I said, excuse me? She said, what, freedom and oppression, that's bullshit. And I said, it's not bullshit. She said, you want to know something? And I said, what? You know where the frickin' revolution is going to start and end? And I said, where? She said, feeding the kids who are hungry. And I was like, it's like one of those bells shook. I was like, guys, bring the camera over here. <laughs> come here, come over here. We got to talk to this lady. We got to talk to this lady over here. I think she's got something here. <laughs> and she said, the revolution's going to start at the kitchen stove because when kids are hungry, they're not going to listen to anything you say or do unless you feed them. I said, damn, you got a point. Did she make it into a poem? No, we had all the women from the, all the feminist movement from New York and L.A. and everywhere from Seattle all come into the kitchen and listen to her. They were all taking notes. <laughs> I was like, this woman hadn't even gone to school. <laughs> she was I'll tell you about, you want to know about revolution? I'll tell you. And she talked about the green movement 20 years before it even was on people's minds, you know. She talked about solar panels, she talked about water, she talked about white rain barrels. She talked about organic gardening, and we're all sitting there with our mouths open, awestruck, you know. Where the hell does common woman come up with all this, you know? It was like, Jesus, way ahead of her time. So you mentioned, uh, I, I mean, this is all... I mean, it's all, it's all poetry, what you're saying, and, uh, and I'm sure that some of it has made, in, made it into your work. None of it, but can I go to sleep pretty soon? Can I go take a nap? Oh, yeah. I need oh, to take yeah. my nap. Oh, yeah. Um, none of it, huh? Well, you, you know, you talked, about, um, you talked about yoga, meditation, writing poetry that have uh, the same uh, meditative quality, spiritual quality for you? Absolutely. Yeah. You can actually... You can actually, uh, through meditation, I mean, you can go to a cave and you can meditate. And you can meditate probably for a good 10, 15 years. Uh, and then you can actually learn how to disembody yourself and leave your body and stuff. And you can actually begin to train your mind to see the insights of the Creator in a way that nobody else, you know, on a normal day has, can. But you can also do that. Uh, you can also do this very same thing much, much quicker in the poem. You can actually sit and if you begin to uh, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite a poem and split the words up in a stanza and rearrange the words in a line. You actually get to a place where you are no longer in this time. You get to another place. And I've done it thousands of times, but it really, 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 really does help to do that type of redrafting and work and process and stuff. 
if you want to be able to leave your body and control your energy and visit people and appear in two places and stuff, I know it sounds crazy, but it's really not that incredible. I mean, you can literally be in two places at one time. You can learn to travel through time and stuff like that. Like uh, Don Quixote, I mean, um, what's his name? Those move, you know, Don, uh, the books about, about, uh, you know, um, famous books in the late 70s, early 80s. A guy, he came out, and it was about the Mexican Huichol, Yaqui leader, teachers. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so it's very easy to do that when you meditate and stuff. It takes a long, long time to Carlos do that. Yeah. yeah. You can do all of the stuff that the teachers and the healers and castaneros work do by, by, by narrowing your, your mind and your attention and your energy into the space between words and then, uh, and then literally, when, when, you, when you take a nap and stuff, you just, literally, you can control your, your energy to go out of your body, and you can be awake, but your body feels pretty rested. You know, you can get up after two hours and have like a 10-hour rest period, but you did it in two hours. And, uh, and you create a kind of energy around yourself that people who want to do harm to you you actually can see where the where the breakage took place, where they went from, I want to love life and be a peaceful person to becoming a violent aggressor. You can actually see the break in their spirit, and you can appeal to that. And it's strange that they won't hurt you, and it's strange that they'll just be immobilized by you, and it's strange that you can, that they'll actually trust you, and it's even stranger that you even give them some sort of counseling that they that they go by and then they come back the next day and thank you. It's very strange. Because there's no rule book that says, oh, guess what? You just graduated from Boy Scout to Eagle Scout. There's none of that. There's no handbook or textbook. Just the person comes to your house the next day and says, I want to thank you for helping me. I don't know what you did, but I want to thank you for it. And you're like, um, want a cup of coffee? Yeah, sure, I'd love to have one. So all of a sudden you're like, you know. And it all goes back to that uh, yoga meditation thing in poetry. All of it. Jimmy Santiago Baca, thank you. <laughs> I don't know what you did for me, but thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony. <laughs>